Oh, you can edit later, but I'm not missing any of this good stuff anymore. Way back. Do you know about the Scott's accusation that sometimes I talk like Nick Nolte? Welcome to GTM Unfiltered, hosted by GTM veterans Judd Borco, Craig Rosenberg, and Matt Amundsen. We make talking business fun and sometimes funny. That's because we're always unscripted, unfiltered, and unlike anything else out there. Get ready. I'm going to jump right in because I got, I got the, based on that, your opinion, and guys, I want to hear from you too. Do tech acquisitions work? I think, I think it depends upon um, sort of the framework that you use to measure success or failure. Um, I think they can definitely work for, for vendors. You know, I think, I think what we're seeing in the sales tech market right now is you've got a bunch of vendors who essentially have offer point tools or point solutions, um, to sales organizations. And the vendors are all looking around going like, how do we build like a, a big software company, not a mid-sized co software company, but like a big software company. And it feels like there's sort of two routes to do that in sales tech. One is you could try to displace Salesforce in the core CRM market. Lots of companies have tried to do that and have at least to date failed. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but like that, that has not worked. And so the other option is you can look at all the other components of the sales technology stack and group them together and say, that kind of looks like a big market. Like the TAM across all of those different tools and point solutions is pretty big. And it looks like we could build, we could, there could be a big software company that sort of overlays that TAM. The question then is like, how do you get there? Right. And you could build, but like, that's hard. That's just as hard as doing acquisitions, by the way, um, if not harder. Uh, or you could go combine, wh whether you call them acquisitions or whatever, like what's really being done here is like vendors are, vendors are looking at each other in these adjacent spaces and basically combining. And you, you have to remember that like good software executives who've done this for a while, they all know that within a given category, there's going to be one market leader and they're going to be one to three runners up, right? And so when you look at the current state of sales tech, which is point tools, point solutions, lots of vendors targeting those point tools, point solutions, um, there's not like a large vendor that's going to emerge using the current strategy. You have to pursue this combination path if you want to build a really big big software company. So if you use that framework, then and you you're able to go successfully acquire a business, integrate that business, um, the financials end up working out. They may not be perfect, but like look, you're the number one vendor in a pretty big market. That works, right? Like if you're a vendor. But there's another framework that you can apply, which was sort of the point of my post which is, well, what, what does it mean for the customer? And I think tech acquisitions very rarely work for customers. Mm. Um, and so the way I would think about that is like one of the things you hear about a lot in the sales tech space right now, too many tools from, from buyers and customers, too many tools, 
lots of overhead, headaches because of all those tools. Um, acquiring a company doesn't solve that problem. Like, I don't know what Clary's uh, roadmap is for the Groove acquisition and like the the product, you know, the integration work that will happen around the product. By the way, I'm not talking about technical integration, I'm talking about the financial, you know, like the integration that typically happens after an acquisition. But it's just, it's hard for me to imagine that a customer will suddenly get this product and be like, oh my God, thank God, sales forecasting and you know, email cadences all in one login or, you know, whatever. I'm sure it's going to be better than that, but that doesn't solve any problems for the customer. It doesn't actually make things better. In Now, having said all that, like there are all these CIO surveys out there right now that basically say like one of the CIO's top priorities is to consolidate tools, right? I read that as like, we want to get rid of stuff. We don't necessarily want to get all these things from one vendor. Those are two very different things. So, so anyway, answer your question. There are different ways to answer that question from a vendor perspective, just very high level financials, how to build a big software company. Acquisitions can absolutely work and do work. Uh, from a buyer or customer perspective, it's not clear to me. And I, like, I don't know developer tools well, or but in sales tech, it's not clear to me that like acquisitions help the customer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I mean, it's since, uh, I mean, you've been saying this for a while, Alvaro. So I've, I've, it's always sort of set me off in like 65 different directions. You know what I mean? Like I was, I had all these, uh, I, I had all these thoughts about what, how we would talk about this. But one thing I noticed in my years of an analyst was this idea of, of people claiming that people wanted sales tech consolidation had, had been happening for a long time. Like, you know, been over, I mean, even in, even in um, the heady times of, you know, the pandemic, when people were buying stuff, they still were coming to us and saying, well, one of the big things we want to do is consolidate tools. And then they, they, they never did, but they did, they did. I like what you said there. They did eliminate tools, mm -hmm. but like, for example, in sales tech, there's a always a preferred sales engagement platform. And everyone thought, well, I could do this one who just added on and like people can. It worked on the low end. And by the way, it didn't cost necessarily more. Right. So like you, you know, but but if you try to rip outreach or sales loft out of the hands of a team that's used to it for the sake of consolidation, you would lose as an internal team. It wouldn't work, you know. And so like it, it just wasn't so like every time we sort of talked through consolidation, it did even back then, it did become more of what you're describing, Scott, which was an operational person going, well, are we using this? Yeah. And yeah. so I, I, I like what you said there. And then I do. And then the second thing, you know, the thing, you know, I, I thought that I don't want to diverse, but I kept thinking about, I was going to ask the team, like, is Eloqua, are Eloqua and Marketo better off being in these big orgs now? Because I, I let's admit one thing. HubSpot is a marvel. Yeah. They, they've been through this thing the whole way. They had features like the CRM. I mean, like there's a lot of CRM HubSpot customers. Yeah. Uh, I don't see Marketo on the low end anymore at all. 
I mean, I'm so like, was I just the Scott's article just got me thinking. I'm like, what about the other way? Which is like, well, isn't it better to just in some case? I, I guess I, there's a lot of elements that have to go with it, but like, uh, HubSpot by staying, you know, becoming a big company on their own, they did add features. It rarely costs you more. That's another sort of interesting thing. Is someone will go buy someone and then they still have to pay for it anyway. Um, that's another sort of factor I think about all the time too. But like. Uh, I don't know that Pardot's better. I mean, I guess Pardot would be better off being in Salesforce, but is our Marketo and Eloqua? I, I think those are two different scenarios, though. I feel like Marketo had reached a size where there was only one option for them. Uh, I don't think they had the ability to technically expand much further. And at that point, the investment drove to acquisition. But I will say one area that's where vendor, I think- vendor, but that's a vendor. Point it's vendor. It is vendor. Absolutely. That's, that's thing for them. Exactly. The from the, For the customer, no. And I, honestly, I think that that's why we, we're seeing so many people now start to leave Marketo, even for HubSpot, where HubSpot was never known as a, an enterprise, yeah. you know, uh, uh, platform. And now they're, they're making, a, they're getting a lot of traction because how easily, how easy it is to get into their ecosystem, use all of their different features. And I think this, that's the one instance where sometimes I've seen it work, but it only is if you can get to a true platform that allows you the ability to pick and choose which pieces you want, ability to test and get off quickly with the understanding of the cost and value associated. It's the only time that I've seen it work where you get that size, but I don't see Clary there yet. Um, you know, maybe but Adobe is there, you know, we, Salesforce, they're they're all over the place, but but HubSpot, like without acquisition, if they had done acquisitions to get to where they are, they would be a prime example. But there is this recipe that happened. So so as I told you guys, like running all over the place, which is like Matt was at Everstring that worked. Yeah, and and that sort of because I was following Scott's thing, it's just like, can you drop these into these distribution channels and be better off? In the case of Everstring, way better off. They yeah, put way better off. That. Yeah. I mean, right? That was a huge, that's a great, that's a big success, right? Yeah, it was, it's worked out incredibly well for Zoom Info uh, and probably was a signal that we we could have held on to that company for a little bit longer uh, and and done and done well. But I think when you look at Zoom Info's acquisition strategy, it's a little bit different, right? Which is they want to be the player in data and they've done acquisitions to defend price point. They've done acquisitions that are, um, that provides supplementary value to their customers. In a lot of cases, customers with gigantic contracts where they're looking for, hey, if I buy this, does this give me an opportunity to go back into a customer and sell more there? Uh, and I think in, in, with them, it, it has. Um, but, but look at, you know, then there was a time where there was, you know, four or five of these big data vendors, including brands like Rain King and, uh, and they just, they pulled all that information together and turned it into one big data company. And that I think has worked extremely well, but it's interesting because it's in, in the cases of the consolidation there in the data space, everybody was kind of good at their one thing. And then to Scott's point, bring that all together, actually improve the quality of what the customer yes. experience was. Yeah. Actually, I, I, okay. I think that's, I think that's a great example of a space that's different than like SaaS business applications, yeah. right? Where it just intuitively makes sense that I would only, I, I would only want to have one data provider if they can get me all the data. Like yes. why would I want multiple data providers? SaaS is really different than that, right? Like you look at, you look at what these 
applications or tools do in the sales tech stack, they do really different things. Yeah. And yeah, there's some little touch points here and there, or logical integrations from a product perspective, but I think you're right on, Matt. Like it just makes sense that there would be one data provider that's just gobbling up all the data. Yeah. But, but wait, wait to, to that point though, everybody right now uses multiple data providers. And while Zoom Info is generally one of many, that never happened. So is it like the people have to want it and see a motion to get there? Or do you think it's just kind of like pie in the sky? Like, oh, I hope one day this happens. I guess they're servicing us better. I need at least three. They're a good option. Well, I, I think Matt knows way more about this than I do. But I, I would just say that to me strikes me as more not to pick on Zoom Info. I, you, know, you could say this about anyone. That's just an execution issue. Like where can, does Zoom Info actually get me the best data or not? And um, the, the models there, you know, like talking about acquisitions and that type of stuff, like I believe buyers want data from one vendor. The question is whether vendors go out and actually execute on that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think in general, there's a level of like data accuracy that everyone's willing to accept in terms of how poor it can be. What is, uh, what I put my sort of RevOps hat on, what I would say is like the ability to ingest that data and put it into the downstream systems for usage. If there's a single pipeline for that, that just makes life significantly easier. So as we think about maybe not the data types that are scorching hot in 2023, but the data types that were scorching hot in 2020, which was, you know, contact data, name, email, uh, phone number, but then also intent data, technographic data. If I can just build a single integration that pulls all of that in for usage across uh, all of my go-to-market, that's just so much easier to manage. And I, you know, I do think that there has been a transition towards how do we make this as easy as possible than necessarily how do we make this as accurate as possible. But it is so on this slide though, so Scott, get your thoughts on this. What? What, what use case, you just gave one, we just sort of talked through it. What, but what use case were, is it where acquisitions work? Like what, well, what? I, so, so I think this data thing's just kind of an interesting thought. It's, you know, it's kind of unique. It's, yep. it's not really applicable to lots of markets. Uh, I think acquisitions, um, so, so those strategic reasons we were talking about at the start, I think or one reason acquisitions can work. I think someone just mentioned a few minutes ago, plugging into a large pre-existing distribution channel can absolutely make an acquisition work, right? Yeah. And um, look, SaaS companies are in this business of like, I, I spend a lot of money building my distribution channel, aka sales and marketing, um, in hopes of like one day sort of crossing this threshold where like all that money I spent on that pays off, right? A lot of companies get to a point where they've spent all this money and they're like, wow, that threshold is still a long way away. How can I get there faster? Oh, well, let me go plug into the Microsoft distribution channel. And I'm not talking about a partnership, right? I'm talking about like being acquired, right? And all of a sudden you're in the Microsoft sales team's back. Or Craig, what we did at Topo with Gartner, I mean, that was never, 
that was never an explicit part of why we sold to Gartner. But if you think about the strategic reasons that a Gartner Topo combination would make sense is Gartner had a multi-thousand person sales organization. We had six salespeople. You guys were still, you know, still creating the same research, the same events, et cetera, right? We just plugged that into a multi-thousand person sales organization. I think, you know, for me, the product synergies are always what I struggle with on acquisitions. And that's why I'm not sure it usually makes sense for the buyer or the customer. Again, the Clary Groove does like, I think we'll learn more like, you know, but like, where does that make sense from a product synergy perspective? I don't really know. Could it make sense from a distribution perspective? I'm going to assume the Clary sales team is bigger than the Groove sales team. So maybe there's some synergy there. But that distribution thing is is a big deal. Yeah. Do, do companies still buy their buy out the company? Because the other thing that I thought about on the Zoom info thing was, you know, Henry tried to buy and still is trying to buy all the competitors in the data space. But do you, it seems like per your examples, Scott, and thinking about SaaS, everyone's trying to do it to expand feature sets instead of like eating the market, like would, so like a outreach sales off never, I don't know, not, this is a terrible example, but never bought Tout App or Groove, right? And sort of bought market share in their core category. I don't do, in companies yeah. that, Well, I think it probably depends on the market, but that's, that's the bet where CEOs and boards in the sales tech market are basically saying the sales engagement market in isolation in a vacuum isn't big enough to support a really big software, you know, and by really big, I mean like Workday, Salesforce, right? That's what investors are interested in. And they're basically saying, hey, we know enough. I think this is what they're saying. We know enough now to say like sales engagement, the TAM there just isn't big enough to support that mark. There are people who disagree with me on this, by the way. And basically their argument is like, well, if we could ever really push into the account executive space and really get up into the enterprise, the TAM is there. But they've been trying to do that for years, right? And so what they're basically saying is the TAM's not big enough there. There are these adjacent sub-markets around us. So let's combine forces or build or whatever. And, you know, we put call recording with sales engagement with you know, whatever else is out there, enablement tools, whatever. And now all of a sudden the TAM looks big enough for us to have, you know, some type of meaningful, big, large venture return software company. Yeah. One, but, one other Jed, area. But before you go, I have been watching Judd. He literally has been nodding the whole time he's been talking. And then when I talk, he's shaking his head. It's perfect. It's so on brand. I love it. I think, yeah, I was going to say before you go, I think Judd's tracking with you, man. No, 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 I, I am. I, I was going to say, though, one thing from a consolidation perspective, too, though, I feel like, you know, like if we want to go like sales off outreach, just as an example, they're selling to the same people. They're stealing each other's customers and acquisition between them really doesn't open a market for them. It doesn't expand. It just says, great, I've got my customers back. The reason I think that that works in other areas, think like logistics, manufacturing, you know, you're getting more capacity. You're getting more clientele. There's a much larger, larger market. And I think from a technology perspective, if we think about it, the market's not as big as people think for a lot of these categories. 
So I don't see a lot of consolidation happening. I just don't think the market's large enough for it. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And actually, that this is a good segue because I, I pulled this one quote. Uh, by the way, your LinkedIn game, I mean, I think we all agree, we talk about it all the time, is amazing. Um, hey, let, let's take a second, though, because we jumped right in. Craig, why don't you introduce Scott? You know him better than all of us. Uh, so why he's even here. So, Scott, yeah. So um, here's, here's, you know, for, for everyone's background, I'm going to start with the fact that I think I worked for Scott for, let's see, 2005, right? And then we sold in 2019. So that's like 14, 15 years of uh, working with and for Scott. So we, um, so Scott's like um, a serial entrepreneur. Um, and now like he was always a thought leader, but he, he always left me to be the crazy guy and ran businesses. And now he's got to do crazy guy and run the business. But, uh, you know, we worked together at uh, a company called Tippet, which was a media company. You can think of it like a, a tech target. Um, and Scott rolled that one. And I, you know, if I look back over Scott's career, that was a classic where it was a really good business up until 20 mil. And then like he had to fight tooth and nail, right? Again, it's I mean, it was unbelievable. And then, you know, now I have that in my backpack going, God, there's some businesses to get to five is okay. Maybe to get to 10 is, you know, they reach these points. Tippett was like 18 to 20. And we, like, we got there fat. We were, you know, everyone's, it was amazing run. And then we're like, oh my God, getting to 30 is like a killer. And Scott had to na navigate that, which is like, uh, it was a marvel to watch. But then after, uh, Tippett, we uh, uh, we were consulting and just trying to figure out what we wanted to do. And, and we had this idea for Topo. And, uh, you know, Scott, from the get-go, ran that thing like, I mean, everyone, you know, you guys have seen it now that I'm coming out and talking about it a little more. It's like, Scott was like, we were at breakfast. He's like, we got, we're going to go run a business together. We got two choices. Do you want to disrupt, like, and hope that, like, this new idea sticks? Or do you want to disrupt and, and enter into a market that we know works, find our niche or do it better? And I was like, God, I was old man. I'm like, we'll do the second one. He's like, great. Here's the partner. Let's go read this. That was amazing. This is like from the get-go, just had a vision for the thing. Um, and then, you know, we, we did Topo before we got bought by Gartner. And now we're sort of doing other things. And Scott has founded a company, which you can, you know, he'll uh, talk about for uh for a little bit we have two questions on that one is what's the company to is how could you start another company again which i mean is just incredible i mean the question really is do you like your hair i mean yeah. <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah scott yeah. if you want to talk about kind of where you are today and anything like that you know as we sort of dive into uh, other questions after that that'd be great yeah of, of, uh, yeah happy to well th thanks for the intro i mean it's funny listening to you recap those 15 years. I tell people I had the hardest job in Silicon Valley, which was managing Craig for 15. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that is true. And uh, anyway, it, it, no, it's funny listening to you recap it because it makes it sound easy. Uh, it was really hard. And you're right. I, I, I am borderline crazy to start another company. Um, the company that I started is a company called Goldie, and we're basically building an AI co-pilot for sales reps. 
Um, it's very early days here. We're still kind of like in early product development and running what we call our charter customer program, where we're, we're working with eight different customers. It's basically design partners as we as we build the product. And uh, yeah, a lot of people ask me, why did I start another business? And there's sort of no clean answer. I mean, there are a bunch of different reasons. Uh, one is I happened to meet uh, a person who is now my co-founder, a guy by the name of Alex Kershoffer, who's our chief product officer. And coincidentally, uh, he was the original product executive at Groove and was one of the co-founders of Groove. And Craig and I and the other analysts at Topo, we always thought very, very highly of the Groove product in that sales engagement space. He and I sort of serendipitously met a little over a year ago, figured out we had this nice complementary set of skills. Um, and, and we actually did not decide to start a company. What we, what we decided to do was spend like three months just exploring different ideas together. And I think we came up with like 20 plus ideas. We'd talk about, and, and they were pretty like robust, rigorous ideas. We'd talk about them. He's like this great critical thinker. So he would poke holes in all these ideas. I'm more of this like enthusiastic optimist who just wanted to go do whatever. That was actually an example of us working really well together. And we would test these different ideas with these small groups of people in our networks. All the ideas were basically in the in the sales and, and marketing space, most of them SaaS ideas. And um we were just looking for an idea that would stick and our and our commitment to each other was like if we found an idea that stuck we would run with it and the idea that stuck was copilot for sales reps there's detail behind that um this was pre chat gpt you know early ai obviously something was happening in ai so that was another so you meet a good co-founder all of a sudden you're sort of pulled via momentum into this space that's like really exciting and hot. So those are two primary, they're personal reasons too. You know, the those are the business reasons. The, the personal reasons is like, I'm at a point in my life where um, it's too early to hang it up. You know, like, like I remember when we were just working on these ideas, we weren't exactly working full time. And one morning I went for a bike ride and um, I got back to the house at like, you know, 10 in the morning. And I remember opening the garage door and thinking to myself, if I didn't have this new company, Goldie, to go work on, what would I do for the rest of the day? Like, literally, what would I do? That was a real, real epiphany, right? So I'm older than you guys. So, so like, but what I can tell you is like, if you, if you hang it up too early, you know, you get to a point, hopefully 20, 30 years down the road where like all those ski days, all those bike rides, all that travel, et cetera, maybe, maybe like the shine kind of wears off of that stuff. I'm, I'm super paranoid about that. So, so anyway, I'm just going to say, I got to right. say it though. I keep telling my wife, you know, I'm never going to retire. Right. Cause I can't yeah. imagine the idea of sitting around like, yeah, I came back. So I love what you said, but I got a question. Yeah. Being that we're we're crazy people, probably on this call, all of us, who should and who shouldn't think about starting a company from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I I I wouldn't 
I wouldn't want to discourage anyone from starting a company based on who they are. Um, I think the biggest thing with starting, a, I, I think there are a couple things when it comes to starting a company. One is you have to be really honest with yourself about how hard it's going to be. And a lot of people think, oh, well, hard means a lot of work. And it is a lot of work. It just is. But so are a lot of things in life. The hard part um, of starting a company is like just the absolute body blows that you'll take along the way where you you have to be able to just like absorb those and bounce back from those and ride through the lows and also ride through the highs and just like work through that stuff. That that understanding how hard that is and being really honest about that stuff is tough. And and by the way, no podcast or blog post or tweet or whatever can truly help you understand what that's like. You you actually have to go live it to understand how hard it is. So that that's one thing um, that I think is is really important is just understanding that. The second thing is um one I think the most important thing is to understand that you can start a business and you can quit. That's actually an okay outcome. And you know, so if it's not for you or if the business isn't working or what, you know, you hear about pivots, right? Like I think pivot is kind of a disservice to this. How about pivot slash quit? Like let's make just stopping an option yeah. um, because there's so many people out there who start something for all the right reasons. The idea doesn't work for whatever reason and they keep going. That is such a great disservice to yourself. Um, so. So also being honest about that, just being like, yeah, I'm going to start this and I'm going to go all in, but I'm also going to have like the mental facility to be able to say like, even though I'm all in, I know when to stop too. That's, that's hard to do. So. Um, yeah. I, I told on that number two, I think about uh, a board meeting we had a long time ago and you walked out and one of the board members is like, why are you doing this? Cause we, you know, we were transitioning to starting yeah. a company. It's like, and you, I remember you said, he's like, that. afterwards, like you said, look, the big learning is failure is an option. Yeah. But we think so. Like in our first company, we didn't, we thought we cannot fail. Like, it's just like, and then, but failure is an option and sort of, you know, uh, being able to make that decision. There's, I think the phrase, give the investors back their money might have something to do with that one too, you know? Well, yeah. Well, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> so how many, uh, how many sales tech buyer types? I'm just thinking like CRO, VP of sales, rev ops. Are you talking to a week? Would you say right now? We try to do, uh, eight to 10 meetings a week and, um, and, and generally we get there. We'll, you know, right now it's early enough where we'll talk to anyone. Like we, we feel like we learn something from literally every conversation. So like a classic example is like an individual sales rep cannot buy Goldie uh, because there's some setup required. There, there, we have to work with RevOps. So like, so like an individual sales rep can't buy Goldie on their own. And um, uh, so you might think, well, why would you talk to individual sales reps there? Well, we do actually. And um, the reason we do is because they're the users of the product. We want to talk to as many of them as we possibly can right now. 
that might change in the, that will change in the future. Um, so, so we have a very kind of, we cast a very wide net. We want, we want to talk to him. Yeah. And then what, but so you, you already brought up, I mean, you started Goldie based on your conversations, but like, what can you tell us right now? What's happening in the sales tech market from your conversations? Any, any learnings there? Yeah. I, I mean, de definitely. Like, I don't, I don't think there are a lot of surprises, right? I, I think, um, the downturn in SaaS just highlights some trends that already existed in the in the sales tech space. So, uh, what we were talking about earlier, tech stack consolidation, where, where again I read consolidation as get rid of tools, not put them together and put them under one vendor umbrella. Like I think, I think vendors have their happy ears on, or maybe. Maybe those are poorly written surveys using the word consolidation as a pro as opposed to elimination or removal or whatever, right? But like it's elimination and removal as opposed to consolidation. Uh, so so that's one thing. I think um, the the second thing is like uh, rep adoption is still a that was a problem that's been a problem for years. Like the number one barrier to sales tech being successful. It is, it is still a huge problem, I think, actually getting reps to use these, these tools in the way that they're supposed to be used on a frequent basis, right? Like daily active user type stuff. Um, I also think that um, there is, and, and some of this is related to that consolidation point, but I think there's a general realization and maybe maybe this is the biggest observation that we have, a general observation amongst sales organizations that we threw everything we had at sales for the last 12 years in the name of making our reps more productive, the business more predictable, et cetera, et cetera. And it didn't work. Like, let's just be honest, right? Like, look at it. It, it did not work. Like we, we threw all these, new technologies at them, all kinds of new data, new governance, new process, new methodologies, new whatever. And we did that hopefully to make our reps more productive or whatever the objective was. And like, let's just be honest, like our reps spend less time selling today than they did 10 years ago. They did. Mm -hmm. so, well, a, a caveat to that or a question really, and I think it's for yeah. everybody. We think it's to make them more productive and maybe to some extent they have been because what I've seen sales and the sales process and methodology has changed dramatically over the last 10 years to the point where now we're saying 70, 80% of the buying process is done before they talk to a person. So between everybody, like, has it actually worked, but only worked to keep them up to date, like keep them far enough along to actually maintain, or do we think there's just been such a massive shift in sales and something else is going on? Because I don't think technology is fixing the bigger problems that sales are running into right now. Yeah, I, that's a good point. I mean, there may be these other shifts in the market that um, are impacting productivity more than, say, inundating reps with lots of tools and data and, and methodologies. I, I guess I'd put it this. So, so, so I'll agree with that, that like um, there have been pattern changes in, you know, buyer behaviors, for example, that might be impacting sales productivity. I guess I'll, I'll put it this way. 
I think a lot of us thought maybe we'll find a silver bullet in all the things that we're throwing at sales. And that we have definitely not found, right? Like, like you know, like the sales engagement tools. I mean, I, I don't know what the sales pitch is like there, right? But presumably they're, they're promising to impact these like strategic metrics in a really big way. I, I don't think we've done that. And I'm not blaming anyone for that. It just doesn't seem like any of these things have been truly transformative in nature. Yeah. yeah, Matt, you were sick. Yeah, you were nodding your I head. wanted to hear from Matt. Yeah. Big time. Like, that was like aggressive, man. <laughs> well, I, there's so much that I want to talk about here. But I think before, just to tag along with what Scott was saying there, is I, my, my thought on a lot of this is, and I realized this early on when I was working at Marketo, is like, if you don't have good marketing, Marketo is not going to make you have good market. Well, if you don't have a good sales process, Sales loft is not going to make you good at selling. Clary's not going to make you good at selling. And I think that in a lot of cases, there's been this widespread tech adoption to try to improve everything, but nobody's really getting down to the fundamentals of why sales process is broken or yeah. why sales reps are ineffective. I think, you know, what's really true is when I sort of diagnose why a sales process doesn't work or why marketing strategy doesn't work is it usually comes down to a couple things. One, like your corporate marketing messaging doesn't work very well. And so, you know, if you would try to apply that broadly to a nurture or landing pages, a website, it, it doesn't work. And on the sales side, if you can't run effective discovery and sort of get an understanding of why someone's talking to you, what they care about and how your product impacts that, then no element of technology is going to help you close more deals. And so I think Marketing first, sales second, went to this, hey, I can adopt technology that's going to improve things dramatically for me. But they never really got to the foundational problem of what was keeping them from being successful in the first place. Uh, so that's my point number one. My point number two around... Totally about that. Yeah, my point number two, where we were going with this is like, has this improved sales? I don't think so at all. Uh, I, I've seen some of the best selling in businesses where salespeople had little to no technology whatsoever, or, or were some like kind of on the cusp. Uh, I think about like the sales reps at Tipco, who these guys were unbelievable. You know, they closed multi-million dollar deals. Uh, all you had to do was give them like a whiff that a prospect was willing to have a conversation with them and they were all over it. Yeah. You know, they could build out a use case. They could build out. Uh, a whole process for for selling immediately. I think a lot of that's gone away because of an over-reliance on technology uh, or an over-reliance on, oh, this is our process for, for broadly as opposed to our process individually. So uh, I think what's ended up happening is a lot of sales reps have lost a lot of soft skills as they've transitioned to leaning into technology uh, more broadly, and that has really impacted the sales process. And I think it's really impacting our ability to close deals. More and more sales reps are just flat out not responsible for any pipeline creation whatsoever. They don't even think about like the simplest tactics. Like I think about my financial advisor every time he, I'm saying, okay, good, thanks for the call, goodbye. He's like, hey, Matt, 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 do you know five other people that would be, you know, that could benefit from this. Like that's not a part of any tech sales reps repertoire at all anymore. And I'm just saying like the 
basic stuff like that is just gone because it's like, well, why would I do that when I could use uh, intent data or I could use modeling to tell me what are the next five companies I could go after? It's like, okay, guys, just have the conversation. You got a live one on the horn. You just sold. They're super happy. They probably have two or three friends that would want to buy your product. And, and sorry for, for narrowing in on, on such a niche use case, but, but I think it's exemplary of what has happened to the whole here. Yeah. Matt, that's a good LinkedIn post right there. Yeah, man. That was, go. I was like, that we could have made that the lead in. Very well. well now oh, we, we got, got it. it. But, but I think that leads, and this is the best group I can think of to ask this question, especially with you on Scott. So is AI really a good thing when it comes to go to market? Because if I hear you right, Matt, we're, we're actually diminishing the skills and abilities of the people that were good and doing these well, where we saw the best results. And now we're giving them even another tool to simplify. I mean, to me, this is like Amazon for people. It's like, oh, no, I don't have to go to a store. Now I don't have to do this. Are we actually making people dumber and worse at their jobs and actually have a more negative effect? I don't think so, because I think what when I think about what I think about what successful AI for sales would be, I think about it as uh, can I can, can I enable the sales rep to move faster by not sort of hampering them with tedious workflow? Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's the place where I think sales reps get an advantage from an AI solution. Do I necessarily think an AI solution that helps you sort of craft a pitch for somebody is helpful? I don't think so. I think that's, that could be more harmful to the sales profession long-term. But if you said like, hey, uh, if you had an AI that was like, hey, you just had a call with Scott Albro and it went really well, would you like me to update Salesforce to the next stage? Would you like me to, uh, there was two or three other people on the call, would you like me to import them as new contacts into Salesforce? Or the stuff that just, takes all of the emotion and like the excitement out of sales if you could automate that i think that would be tremendous but but matt still on that i'm i'm teeing it on you for the marketing part too how about in the marketing frame because now we're seeing a lack of creativity in writing there's oh, sure. patient like now and that's just one use case but what are your thoughts from the other aspects of go to market not just sales so so to me like i uh I don't think that I can determine the difference between an AI written blog post and a human written blog post in all cases, but uh, I mean, they tend to be pretty boring, right? Like they tend to be pretty academic and that's not why you read something to get excited about a product. So I think in terms of how you're utilizing a AI as a marketer uh, in that context, like, yeah, I, I, I don't know that that's great. I think it works well for SEO. Certainly, you know, you're just writing a bunch of boring content to try to, to, to optimize for search. I think that that's, that's a brilliant application of it. I think if you're trying to cultivate and create uh, an audience that, that you can capture as, as customers, ultimately, that's, that's probably not a good use case. But I do think that there are applications for AI that will make sense uh, uh, for marketing technology. And what I mean by this is like, I can't tell you 12 years after working at Marketo, how many people still struggle to build campaigns in Marketo? And if you could apply just simple uh, AI to the front end of anything that you're building, just like, hey, Marketo, can you build me a list that looks like this? Or can you segment my database to send an invitation to Dreamforce? Uh, that would be a great way of, of applying AI to some of the MarTech stack. I think in terms of like decisioning and stuff like that, that's challenging. I still like data teams to do that type of modeling, but like 
a marketing AI that does the work for you? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Matt. I mean, back to your comments about sales and AI, I think, uh, look, we're, we're, we very intentionally use the, the term co-pilot to describe what we're building at Goldie. It's not the pilot. It's the co-pilot, right? And one of our core design principles in terms of how we think about building the product, and, and basically what Goldie does is it, it helps sales reps um, execute different what we call plays and activities. Um, and and the, the whole idea there and the design principle behind it is to make sure that Goldie is freeing up time for the rep so that the rep can spend time on what we call uniquely human skills. Mm-hmm. Like conducting good discovery is a uniquely, hu- AIs are not good at asking questions. They're terrible at it. And if you think about discovery in a sales process, that's what discovery is, is asking a set of questions. And so like the example Matt was giving, we, we call that post-meeting follow-up. Like you have a meeting with a customer, there are a bunch of mundane, menial, administrative things that need to happen after that meeting. If the AI can automate that stuff for you and allow you as the sales rep to spend time really understanding what the customer told you on that call, then AI helps, right? Or like another example of this, we have a bunch of customers who were building what we call closed loss win back plays into Goldie. You know what reps struggle with is like, Hey, I lost this deal six months ago. I know I should follow up with them now and try and win them back, but it just never happens. Like the human brain just isn't built to work that way. Well, an AI is. And so if Goldie can remind the rep like, hey, it's been six months since you lost that deal. Let's get back in there and try and win them back, right? And here's some suggested messaging and some context, but you go figure out how to do it, the sales rep. That seems like a good combination to us. So those, those uniquely human skills are really important. They're important today to Matt's point about we've lost some of those in sales today. My prediction is they come back because of AI, because we're going to free up rep time to, to spend on those uniquely human skills. Yeah. Also, Scott, like that's part of Matt's rant was like on just basic blocking and tackling. And, you know, that's, those were real, those are really good use cases you brought up, right? From an AI perspective, like the follow-up email or, um, you know, these, these sort of, so I would say you've got mundane tasks, which I'm always in favor of, of automating and AI, I think will, uh, you know, help with a lot of that. But two is like, you know, can we take some of the basic blocking and tackling that the best reps do and can AI facilitate um, execution against those? I think that's, I think that's real. I think three where we don't know, I actually think the infrastructure layer and is really interesting from an AI perspective. An example of that is like, well, you know, right now we have the Clarys of the world or whatever that allow us to look at things, but like, you know, can the a- can AI in combination, you know, and with chat GPT, et cetera, be able to look at what's happening in the business, looking at the data for us and then send us, hey, this 
these numbers are going down. Traditionally, this is look like, you know, you would get like an email that would, uh, the RevOps person would only be able to see if they were in a meeting with everyone. I think that advanced jujitsu down the line, I think it's, a, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty excited about AI. I think what Matt's bringing up is a really big fundamental issue. Like Robert Kaler, you know, we just did a webinar with him. Scott knows him really well. The guy gets on, right? I don't know if you went to that one, Jeff, but he's the first thing he said is like, we got all these problems and like our fundamentals have fallen to the worst he's ever seen in 30 years. And that's definitely what Matt's talking about. I mean, like we have like, uh, you know, we, we do, we have a, a crisis in how we engage with customers. And so I like this idea of, you know, can a, I don't know if AI helps with that. Like you were talking about, like they can't, can't help with questions and these things. We still have to, you know, we have to make reps better, but I do think AI is next level in terms of automating a lot of the things that we've wanted to automate. Yeah, and yeah. that the, the less, uh, there's, like I said, there's the mundane, let's pull that out of the way. And number two is let's take from the best reps and the fundamentals that they do. And it, you know, it may help facilitate those. I think those will be good things for the sales profession. We'll have to ask Matt three years from now whether he feels it's changed or not. But I do think it helps against what Matt's uh, main points were. Uh, by, so by, the, by the way, like they better get good at that stuff again. Otherwise, they're not going to have jobs. Oh. I mean, a AI is going to automate the non-unique skills, right? Yeah. So you better get good at the uniquely human skills. You, yeah. That's just going to be a question of survival. And that, that's going to be everywhere. But on the on the topic of AI, and, and this is a question that we kind of had, right? The uh, according to Dreamforce now, they are the largest AI event in the world. What impact is this this event going to have right now? Because I was at the last Dreamforce, personally didn't think that much of it. What do we think is going to happen? Is this going to be a total AI fest, or what's going to happen? What, what are your thoughts, guys? Because we're almost at time, so I wanted to end on this note. It'll be an AI fest in the fact that there'll be a lot of sessions on it. Um, I think a lot of people will have very similar takes on it. Um, and I, I don't know that I've seen somebody yet come forward with something that is really unique uh, on, on the AI front because, you know, um, Scott's company hasn't fully launched yet. <laughs> and when it does, it'll be the first one that that's really doing it well. No, uh, I mean, I think, you know, it's going to create a lot of buzz and it'll bring people back to San Francisco for an event that, you know, has, has, has suffered as a result of, uh, of the pandemic. And so, I mean, look, like throw AI on anything right now. I mean, Snowflake's got it on their, on their, on their billboard right now. They are the AI to cloud, right? Uh, so, so, uh, so it's, you know, it's attracting a lot of eyeballs. It'll attract a lot of visitors. Um, it'll, it'll make for a really good conversation and pontification on the future of go-to-market. But um, I don't know that there's a lot of really good practical use case AI that's out there outside of, you know, what's kind of uh, being done from, from, from the mega players in that space right now. And Scott, I want to leave you for last. So I want to hear Craig's oh. take real quick because we'll, we'll end with the, the smart guy on the, on the podcast here. On the yeah. scale, it's the smartest. By the way, I will say from the AI front for my invites, we're having an event on, I think it's a Wednesday, September 13th, where we have a, a uh, the Coda Street market. And uh, so, by the way, on my 
invites to people, you know, we have, we've invested in Reggie. So I do, I use it to start because I prefer to be an editor than an originator and it helps me with the initial write-up and then I edit it. So fun fact there. I don't, I mean, AI is going to be sprinkled on everything. I don't know if that has an effect on Dream. I don't think that brings more people. I think uh, Dreamforce is going to have its uh, crowd. It'll be less than what we saw when it was just mayhem. Um, but it won't, it'll, uh, I think people are, you know, I think there's a couple things happening. One is, you know, there, there's still this longing for human interaction. I mean, I don't, a lot of conferences have sort of, they, they're not reaching the heights that they had when it was just, everyone had their expense accounts and was flying into town. But I do think there's a longing to, to have these types of interactions. I think ultimately you know, Salesforce is still the center of the go-to-market universe. And like, you know, so that you could see that being, uh, I don't think that goes, I don't think that goes away. I, and number three, I don't know that there's that many events, particularly at this scale that brings the go-to-market folks together. So I think AI, you've got to do, and it'll be on every, I mean, I'm doing three presentations on AI for sales. I mean, it's like on, but I do think there's a, there's a lot of other factors that will bring people back. It just, it's not ready to be back to the, to the, the, to the attendance that it was at before. So. Got last, but obviously not least. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, Dreamforce and Salesforce for that matter, they are what they are at this point. Like it's, it's just a beast, you know, and, and it's, it's not going away anytime soon. I, I, um, it, it is the event in in go to market there's nothing else that's even close so um i think the ai thing at dreamforce um you know for me you're going to hear a lot about it obviously um just like we heard a lot about social at dreamforce however many years ago i mean we forget that like sales like yeah so yeah social sell it whatever like like Salesforce latches onto these movements um, in an opportunistic way, and they do a good job with it. And part of that is is the events and and Dreamforce in particular. So, and I don't think there are any surprises there. I think the big question is like, you know, for for us in and and look, like I'm the CEO and co-founder of a, of an AI company. For us, there's still this big question out there, which is. In a B2B setting, is is AI a toy or is it like ready to be a mission critical application yet? That's that's kind of where we are in the market. Dreamforce, they're gonna be people talking about how incredible AI is. And but like to Matt's point, it's like we're still waiting for like these real use cases to emerge and these real proof points to emerge on what AI can do for a sales and marketing organization. With all due respect to companies that are helping people write emails and, and what like, but I kind of put a lot of that in the toy category and like, we're still like exploring like what it means to use AI in a truly mission critical context. So so is everybody going to be there? Oh, yeah. 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 Nice. Guys. Uh, as a oh, wait, go ahead. One last question for Scott, just because this is a Craigism and he spent so much time working with Craig. Uh, Craig has dubbed Moscone the scone. What are your thoughts? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, well, I, I will say this. Craig, uh, I like to laugh a lot. 
And and uh, Craig has made me laugh a lot over the course of the last 15, 20 years. And I will say that one of Craig's go-to ways for making me laugh is he will come up with nicknames that are so good and so funny. I mean, literally the best nicknamer I've ever known. And I've known some good nicknamers. The scone is not one of them, though. Oh, no. Oh, 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 come on, man. Oh, I love your buildup, Scott. That was that was perfect. And the best way I could have think to to end this. Guys, as always, thank you so much for tuning in. We might be live at Dreamforce, maybe. So thanks again. We'll Scott, thank you so much for being a part of this, man. Couldn't even imagine yeah. if doing this one without you today. And guys, we'll have some more amazing guests like Scott on. So stay tuned. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to GTM Unfiltered. To hear our innovative insights and strategies, visit gtmunfiltered.com. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time.